Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. If you are with us last week, you know that we began a series last Sunday called True Grace, Grit to Stand in Hostile Territory. And this series is walking us throughout the summer through the book of 1 Peter. And in this book, uh, there's a wonderful message for us that God has preserved. And that message is that we can trust Christ, that we can ever love and trust Him, even when our world is difficult, and even when we go through hard times, and, and even when the church is even persecuted because of our belief and faith in Christ, we can have grace, we can have grit to stand even in that kind of hostile territory. That's what God has done for us in Jesus. And so we're going to be looking at that all summer from the pages of the book of 1 Peter, and my prayer is that it's an encouraging message to you as it's been to me as we've gotten ready. But uh, we began last week, and we saw really in the first 12 verses of, of 1 Peter how we can have hope, how we can rejoice even as we go through uh, difficulties and even as we experience various trials. We're going to continue this message by looking at verses 13 through 25 this morning. But before we, we look at verses 13 through 25, I want to just share with you a little story, a little perspective on life, a little snapshot into my growing up years. I grew up in the era of cable television, uh, not satellite, but cable. Uh, how do you know the difference? You know the difference if by cable you mean that you had 12 channels in your house. Uh, that's how I grew up. We grew up with 12 channels. And one of those channels that we had piped into our house was the Superstation, WTBS. Uh, now, you may know it just as TBS, but it'll always be the Superstation to me. Um, and when I think about uh, this channel, part of the reason why it was watched often in our house was because of the programming that was on it. One thing that was always on the Superstation was Atlanta Braves baseball. And I didn't particularly like the Braves, but I liked baseball, and I loved the Cardinals, and they played them every once in a while. So we would tune in to watch some Braves-Cardinals games on the Superstation. But a, a much more common occurrence into why I would tune into the Superstation was because they had this little show called the Andy Griffith Show. You guys rem remember this? You may watch. Wow, I, I, could, I could promise you money and cars and life and you would not clap. I say Andy Griffith, everybody celebrates, so it's interesting. Um, the Andy Griffith Show was, it was a part of my growing up. We would watch it uh, growing up, and it was, it was kind of an interesting show. It was about uh, this local sheriff in a town called Mayberry. Uh, his name was Andy, Andy Taylor, confusing Andy Griffith, Andy Taylor, but you just kind of had to deal with it. And Andy would uh, rule the town with his deputy, Barney Fife. And uh, there were some colorful characters in that town where they were presiding over. And one of those colorful characters that they would interact with was this guy named Otis Campbell. You guys remember Otis? Um, how do I put this politely? Otis was the town drunk, okay? And uh, Otis would go out and he would tie one on in the evening. But then Otis was really interesting. He would come back to the jail at uh, the end of the, the evening, and he would walk into the sheriff's office, and he would go over and he would grab the key to the jail off of the, the nail on the wall, and then he would unlock the cell, he would go inside, he would close the door, then he would hang the key back on the hook, he would lay down and sleep it off, and the next morning, Otis would wake up, sober, reach out, 
grab the key, let himself out, and leave. Now, here's, here's the question you really ought to ask yourself. You know, everybody would talk about what a great sheriff Andy was. Do you really have to be a good sheriff in a town where the crooks let themselves both in and out of jail? I mean, that just doesn't seem like real life. And, and you know, that's not real life. That is Mayberry life. That is Superstation WTBS life. That's not real life. Because I can tell you, as somebody who's visited a number of prisons, going to, to visit inmates, uh, friends of mine, and, and do some ministry in prisons, I, I can tell you that nobody is letting themselves out of prison. Um, if somebody is to get out of a prison today, uh, they need some help. And this is driven home even this week, as there's stories of a prison break in New York State and those people got out of prison because somebody helped them. They couldn't do it themselves. They needed some help from the outside. That's the way prison is in real life. But in Superstation WTBS life, people can let themselves in and out as they wish. Now, we are here in this room, and and this, contrary to some of your thinking, is not a prison. This is Wildwood Community Church. And uh, so we are not in a literal prison, but the reality is that many times we find ourselves in some metaphorical prisons, some, some spiritual prisons where we find ourselves confined by the bars of our sin. Sometimes it's because we don't know Christ and we're chained to the wall of our sin and, and the death sentence awaits we find ourselves experiencing the consequences of our sins, separated from God, separated from others, and confined into a cell of our sin. For others of us, we have experienced freedom in Christ. We have trusted in Him, and yet today we find ourselves in a different kind of prison, a prison of fear and of doubt, and we find ourselves boxed in. Now, sometimes people want to pretend like the church is a WTBS kind of world, and that the Bible is a WTBS superstation kind of book. In other words, the prisons we find ourselves in are things that we get into on our own and we can get out of on our own. But the reality is that the Bible and, and, and the things that we, we focus on in terms of truth centered on the Savior, Jesus Christ, doesn't point to a prison that we can get out of on our own. Otis's arm was long enough to reach the key, but the reality is that the prisons that we find ourselves in today of doubt, of our sin, of, of fear, the key is beyond our reach. And if we are to experience any kind of freedom, we need someone to open the door for us. And knowing that we live our lives in, in that kind of a prison, that we live our lives in those kinds of shackles, the God of the universe has done the remarkable for us. He has graciously come to us and he's offered us freedom from the things that entrap us in this life. And this morning, as we look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 25, what we're going to see is we're going to see the incredibly blessed truth that Jesus sets us free. So we're going to do that by looking at 1 Peter 1. So if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to take it and turn there. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 13. I'm going to read these verses for us, and then we'll, we'll back up and, and, and unpack them a little more together. 1 Peter 1, verse 13 says this. It says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. This is 1 Peter 1, 13 through 25. Now, this morning, we're going to see four things. Really, we're going to see two things, but the second thing has three parts. Um, The first thing we're going to see is this, and I mentioned it earlier. Jesus sets us free. Jesus sets us free. This is a a blessed truth. Can you guys say that with me? Jesus sets us free. Jesus sets us free. Now, we see that right in the middle of this passage that we just read. It's the anchor to this section of God's Word. It's a section that, that describes what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Verse 18 begins and says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Now, what does it mean that Jesus has has ransomed us? Now, we normally think of the term ransomed as it pertains to kidnapping. Somebody takes a child, and then a payment is required for that child to be returned to their family. That's the way we kind of think of the word ransom today. It's the way it's popularly used today. But in the first century, this term of of being ransomed would have had a a much more specific application as it relates to slavery. See, the, the Roman world at this time was full of slaves. The Roman Empire, into which this letter was written, was about 40% slaves at that point in time. About 18 million slaves in the Roman Empire when Peter writes his letter. Here's what that meant. What that meant was, most likely, every church, every group of followers of Christ would have been made up of three different groups of people. There would have been those who would have been free men. These were people who would have been born with privilege and and title and property and that they would be free. There would be those who were slaves, who were owned by somebody else, and that was not based merely on race. It could be based on any number of factors that you were a a resident of a nation that was conquered. You fell into debt to someone else. There's a number of reasons why someone could become the property of another in the first century. Um, But the church would have been made up of some free men, some slaves, but it also would have been made up of some freed men. Now, this is what made somebody a freed man. What made someone a freed man was that they used to be a slave. And the way they went from being a slave to being a freed man was that they would 
would pay a, a, a sum of money, a, a set of resources that would allow them to gain their freedom. They would purchase their freedom, and they would say it in their world, they would ransom their freedom. There was a price that was necessary to be paid. For some, it would be the price that led to their enslavement. If, if I owed $100 to, to Brian and, and I couldn't pay it back, Brian could own me until I, I, I paid $100 back to him. Um, that's the way it worked in, in, in the first century. And so there was a sense where, where people in the first century were familiar with this concept of being ransomed. Well, here's what Peter is saying as he writes this letter to the believers in this church. He says, you know this phenomena that you know about where people can purchase their freedom by making a payment? Um, that is not something that is only true for the slaves and for the freedmen, but that is something that is true for all people, spiritually speaking. That all of us, spiritually speaking, have a, a debt to be paid to God because we are, are sinful people, because we are fallen people. There's a, a consequence or a payment that our fallenness, that our sinfulness deserves. Because of every lie that we've ever told, because of every uh, bad thought that we've ever had, because uh, of every a lustful thought that has passed through our brains, there is a consequence that comes from that. Because of every false God that we have, have ever followed or any other pursuit that we've ever put at the forefront of our life other than God, there's a consequence that comes from that. And that consequence is, is this, this, this payment of death, the Bible says in, in, in the book of Romans. That all of us are sinners and our sin has a payment that is required and that payment that is required is a, a separation from God because God is holy and we are not. There's a death that is required because of our sin. And what Peter is saying as he writes this letter is he's saying that, that Jesus has, has come to us and he has made a payment so that we could be set free from that debt. The debt of, of death that our sin requires, Jesus has, has made a payment so that we might be a freed man and woman, so that we might be set free from the shackles of our sin, so that we might enjoy relationship with God again. That's what, what Jesus has, has offered us. And it's interesting, he's, he says that he, he offers it to us. He has offered up this, this ransom not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You know, even in my example that I gave earlier, wouldn't it seem a little, little insignificant if $100 made me Brian's slave? Please say yes. It'll make me feel better. Uh, that seems like a small... How do you put a, a dollar amount on someone's life? How do you do that? And, and yet in the, in the first century, that was common in this idea of slavery. People had dollar values associated with them. There, there's something wrong with that, right? I mean, how, what, what could really be the value of that? And yet we, we struggle with this often. We, we struggle with, you know, putting a value to things that are very valuable to us. Um, you know, I, I give you an example. I, some of you know that a number of years ago, my, my wife, Kimberly, three years ago this summer had a kidney transplant, and her sister gave her a kidney. And it was this amazing gift of life that has allowed her to, to, to be healthy, and it was just a wonderful thing. But what do you do as a thank you for somebody that gives you their kidney? Um, and Kimberly and I thought long and hard about that, and we came up with the answer, a cookie cake. Um, and and uh, I'm, not, I, I'm not joking. We, we sent her a cookie cake that said, thank you, Angie. And we, we sent this cookie cake to her, and uh, we said, now... Is that a, a, a trivial gift? Absolutely. It, is a cookie cake equal to a kidney? Not even close, but it was the best that we could do, right? 
We do this all the time when we give expressions of, of, of our gratitude, but they don't ever seem enough. But here's the thing. When it comes to our salvation, it wasn't just some silver and gold. It wasn't just a, a nice sentiment or a Hallmark card or a weekend use of the, of the timeshare. What purchased our freedom was, was the very life of Jesus. When he went to the cross, when he died and his blood bled there at the cross, that was, that was the payment for your sin and for mine. See, Jesus has offered us this incredible gift of life, and he offers it to us at great cost to himself. He's paid our ransom because he wants to set us free. This was God's plan from the beginning. It wasn't just an amendment later on. It wasn't an afterthought. It was his plan from the beginning. Verse 20 says that from the the foundation of the world, God knew that this was going to happen. He set it into motion when Jesus was born in Bethlehem and when he eventually would die on the cross at, at Calvary. That was the plan of God from the beginning, and he did so as the spotless lamb, verse 19 tells us. It's important because Jesus, when he died, bore no consequence for his own sin because he had none. He fully took the consequences of our sin to pay our ransom and not his own. The right time God sent him to die on the cross for our sins. And then verse 21 drives it home for us. It says, who through him we are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Here's what that, that passage is, is telling us, basically. The hope that we have, the, the faith that we have, it's in God because our arm is not long enough to reach the key to let us out of that. There's not enough good deeds we can do. There, there's no stick in the cell that we could jimmy the key with to unlock the prison of our sin and let ourselves out. Our only hope is for someone to do something for us who had no consequence to pay for on their own. And that on, the only person who is qualified to do that is the person of Jesus Christ who offered to give his life as a ransom for your sins and for mine so that we might walk out of the cell, so that we might have a relationship with God that would endure and would go on into eternity. And here's the thing, many, many of us here in this room have embraced this at some point in the past. We are, as, as Peter says there in verse 21, we are believers in God. We have secured our hope in him. And you know what, if, if that describes you today, take some time today and just thank God again for the ransom that was paid and the freedom that he offers you because it's real and it's still relevant today. But for others in this room, you might be here today and and you might find yourself in this this cell of your sin and you're chained to those consequences and you've spent your life trying to either forget that you're in the cell or trying to reach the key yourself to let yourself out and you found yourself no further along than you were in day one. And if that's the case, I believe that God has you here today to hear this message from 1 Peter chapter 1 that Jesus is the one who sets us free. We live in a real world, not a superstation WTBS world, not Mayberry RFD, but, but Norman, Oklahoma, a real place where we really need someone to set us free. And the great news 
is that in his grace, God has offered us that freedom in Christ. If your heart is moving in that direction, where you sit right now can be the moment that you begin to trust in Christ. Jesus sets us free. Now, when he sets us free, what does he set us free for? When the door to the cell opens up and Jesus has paid our release, what do we do next? What's the purpose for our life? What what do we do next? What does Jesus set us free for? And really, that is what the rest of this passage is about. Jesus has set us free for at least three different things mentioned in this passage, and I want us to look at those things here. The first thing we see is that Jesus sets us free to hope. Jesus sets us free to hope. Now, we see that back in verse 13. Verse 13 begins with the word, therefore. This therefore connects what he's getting ready to say to what he had just said. And we saw last week that what he had just said in chapter 1, verse 6 and following is that as as followers of of Christ, we can rejoice even as we experience various trials, not on the basis of what we see, but on the basis of what God has promised. We can have hope in him regardless of, of what we see because of what God has promised us in Christ. So, so therefore, we can have hope. But it's interesting because Peter understands that we live in a, a real world. He understands that we live in Norman and not Mayberry. And we know that because of what he says next. He's getting ready to call us to hope. But before he does that, he says this. He says, prepare your minds for action. Now, that's an interesting phrase. And in your Bible, you might have a little footnote by that phrase. And, and if you follow that footnote to the bottom or the side of your page, it'll probably say something like this. In the original language, literally, this means to gird up the loins of your mind. Well, what does that picture mean? See, back in this day, people would wear, you know, togas. They would wear tunics. And it would be long flowing. There'd be a robe around the, or a, a belt around their waist. And they would wear that robe down most of the time. But when it was time to work, or when it was time to fight, they would take that robe and they would roll it up and they would cinch it tight with their belt so they'd be prepared for action, so they could work hard, so they could fight hard, so they could run fast. When somebody would, would gird up the loins of their robe, it meant that they were ready for action. And Peter here uses this strange phrase and he says that you got to gird up the loins of your mind. Our mind has no loins, at least Mine doesn't, I don't think. Um, Maybe yours do. You're a pretty exceptional group. But what he says here is he says that we must prepare our minds for battle. Because when, when it comes to having hope, there is a battle that goes on in our minds. It is not easy to have hope. It is easy to become discouraged, isn't it? It's easy to become depressed. It's easy to think that nothing will change. It's easy to think that God is not for you. It's easy to think that God is not passionately pursuing you. It's easy to think that God does not love you. It's easy to get there when life is hard, when circumstances are uncertain, when the diagnosis comes back unfavorably, when you're persecuted for your faith in Christ, when someone walks out of your life, whether it be a parent or whether it be a spouse or whether it be a child, whether it be a boyfriend or a girlfriend. It is easy in those moments for us to to begin to think that God is against us and not for us. It's easy in those moments to not have hope. What Peter says is if we're going to have hope in those moments, we need to be ready for a fight, ready for a fight in our minds. 
where we need to take our thoughts captive, to not allow ourselves to have our circumstances dictate our life, but allow the Word of God and His promises and truth to be what we rely on. He says, preparing your minds for action. But then he goes on, he says, and being sober-minded. Now, what is that phrase all about, sober-minded? The opposite of sober is what? Drunk, right? And what I think Peter is, is trying to tell us here is that it's possible for us to get drunk on emotion. It's possible for the circumstances of our life to cause us to become drunk with the fear of what might be. It's, it's possible with the, the, the pain of today to, to intoxicate us from being able to make the right choices to follow God, to trust in Him. It's possible for us to, to wander away from Him because of the difficulties around us as we imbibe on them in our daily life. And what Peter is saying is if we are to have hope in the midst of our various trials, not only do we need to be prepared for action, but we also need to to not allow our emotions to control us. We need to be grounded in the Word of God. And after saying those things, he says, therefore set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's difficult to have hope, isn't it? Peter knows that. God knows that. That's why he's given us true grace. That's why he's, he's given us these reminders that, we're in for a fight. We need to focus our minds on Him and our minds on tomorrow, not on, on our today, our, our circumstances. See, one day he says that Jesus is going to come back. There will be a revelation of Jesus. We will see Him face to face. He will return to this earth. And when He does, our salvation is so certain. We need to live to, for tomorrow in light of tomorrow. Live today in light of tomorrow. See, we can have a hope. And, and I, I can tell you, folks, some of you know some of the things that my family's been through over the years, and it's, it's much less than many of you and, and more than others, but the specifics don't matter. But here's what I'm telling you. I share this message with you all today, not as a message that you need, but a message that I need. It's a fight to have hope sometimes. And yet the way that we have hope is by focusing on Christ, not on today. Jesus sets us free. He sets us free to hope. Second thing, Jesus sets us free to holiness. Jesus sets us free to holiness. He allows us to live a life that is honoring to Him. He calls us to follow Him in a radical way. Verses 15 and 16 say it this way. It says, But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, this is a, a radical call for us. God is holy. He is perfect. And then the logic here is that if we are, are God's child, if we are following Him, if, if Jesus is our Savior, if we are born again in Him, then our lives ought to be pursuing holiness just as He did. Now, as we pursue that holiness, will we, will we live a perfect life today? Well, no, there, there are a number of other passages in Scripture that remind us that there still is a need to, for us to confess our sins, and there's still opportunities for us to fall short of God's glory. This is something that will continue to happen even after we trust in Christ, that, that perfection is not possible. But here's the thing. 
Many times we allow the fact that, that we will fall to excuse us to just live any old way we want to. Because we're, we know that we'll sin sometimes, we figure sometimes maybe we should just sin all the time, or at least all the time in one or two areas. We kind of excuse that sin away. And that is not why Jesus died. Jesus did not die to set us free to live any old way. Jesus died and opened the door of the cell so that we might walk out and follow him in holiness. If we are his, then we will follow him. And as we follow him, it will lead to a, a difference in our lifestyle, both in the negative and in the positive. In the negative, there will be things that we used to do that we won't do anymore. Verse 14 gets into that a little bit. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. In other words, they used to do a bunch of stuff that their culture thought was right, but was actually wrong and ignorant. And he says, in Christ, as you live out a, a holy life, you're not going to do some things that your culture says is right. And you know what? This is a, a call that is for us today as well. If we were to live a, a holy life following God, there will be things that everybody else around you will do, and they will nod and wink at it and say it's okay, and yet we are not to do them. Why? Because we follow a holy God. What are some of those areas where our, our world around us is, is calling us and saying this sin is okay? Well, certainly areas of sexual immorality would, 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 would fall there. Why do we not do that? Because we follow a holy God, and He's got a different way, a better way for us to follow. Same thing would be true of, of gossip or of slander, of lying to, to build yourself up. The world would say, that's fine to do such things, and God would say, I want you to live in holiness because I'm holy and I'm, I'm asking you to follow me. When the door swings open and we follow God out, He wants us to follow Him in this path of holiness, and that'll lead to some things that we don't do that we used to do. But it also will lead us to do some things that, that are marked by the character of God as a loving God. Look at what it says in verse 22. It says, on the positive side, he says, "...having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart." See, not only will we, we not do some things, but we are going to do some things. We are going to love those around us from a pure heart. In other words, we're going to seek their best interests. Now, we're not going to love them so that they will love us. We're going to love them because Jesus loves them and he, he values them and they're created in his image. And so we're going to love those around us for that reason. And we're not just going to love them a little bit. We're going to love them, he says here, earnestly. The idea of loving earnestly is the idea of loving at full exertion. This word earnestly could be used of a weightlifter. If I, if I could bench press 400 pounds, which would be awesome, uh, it's not true, but it would be awesome. And if I could bench press 400 pounds and, and I was lifting 400 pounds, then that was full exertion for me. That's the idea here in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. We were, are to love others with full exertion using all of our energy and all of our effort to love and to care for others. See, this is, this is what God has, has called us in, in holiness. He loves perfectly. We, we follow in His perfect love. Now, why do we do that? We do that, verse 23 and following tells us, because we've been born again. 
we're his. Our, our character has been changed. Our hearts have been aligned to him. Not of a perishable seed, but of an imperishable one through the living and abiding word of God. End of verse 25, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. The picture here is that God's word are like seeds that have been planted in our souls. And as we are born again, we, we have a fertile soil inside of us where, where God's truth could come to fruition to where others might see it. We are, we are called and we are freed in Christ to live a holy life. We're to, to have a hope and we're to follow him in holiness. Third thing that we'll see quickly here is that Jesus sets us free to honor God. Jesus sets us free to honor God. We see this in, in verse 17. He says here, And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. What Peter is saying here is that we need to live our lives now knowing that one day we will see God our Father. We will stand before Him. We will give an account for our lives before Him. Therefore, we should live our lives with a, with a, a certain measure of respect towards Him as we approach that day. Now, this is a, a hard concept for us to grasp. In our world, in our culture, we, God is very familiar. We don't talk about fearing God very often. And yet, right here in, in the New Testament book, in 1 Peter chapter 1, we're called to fear God during our time of exile, our time on this earth. Now, what does that really look like? What does that mean? Well, there's a, a story maybe I'll tell that would, might help you uh, nail this down a little bit. And it has to do with when I was in high school, and I was 16 years old. And uh, I went out at 16 uh, and spent some time with some friends, and I was supposed to be home at 10.30. But you know what? 10.30 came, and I wasn't ready to go home. So I began to think, which is a very dangerous thing to do for a 16-year-old. Um, but here's what I began to think. I don't want to go home yet. And you know what? Mom and dad are probably already asleep. And since they're already asleep, I'm not going to call them and bother them and wake them up. I mean, I'm thinking of them, right? Uh, so I'm not going to call them. As a matter of fact, I'm going to just stay and enjoy my time out with my friends. Well, we'll just past midnight, it's our, our fun ends and I'm, I'm, I'm headed home. And as I'm driving up my street, I turn off the headlights and pull into the driveway for them. I didn't want to wake them up. Uh, and, and I pull in and, and I, I get out of my car and I, I walk stealthily up to the door and as quiet as I can, I turn the knob, again, for them, and I open it up and I look across, I kid you not, I look across the, the area and my dad is sitting on the fireplace just like this. Now, it was, it was his fingers, not a real gun, but it was kind of dark. I couldn't see. And he's just staring at me. And uh, I just looked at him, and he just pointed to my bedroom. And I just kind of slid into my bedroom. Uh, I think I got up about 6.30 the next morning just to prove that I could. Uh, here's what's amazing. My dad and I never talked about that. We never talked about that again. But you know what? I never did that again. And, and you know why? Because I, did I do that because I was afraid that if I came back later that my dad was going to kick me out of the family? Absolutely not. Why did, I, why did I not do that again? Because I knew my dad would be waiting for me and that he cared about me and that I didn't want 
to, to hurt him, and I didn't want to see that again. Here's the deal. As we live out our lives, we need to live out our lives with a knowledge that one day we'll see our God again. We'll see him face to face, and it will be just as real as I saw my dad that night. And knowing that we will see him, let's not live our lives thinking that he is unaware of the way that we'll live. One of the ways that we honor God now is that we live our lives in light of the fact that we'll see him one day and we'll talk about how it went. And we, we, we fear him, we honor him, not as someone that we're afraid he will kick us out of the family, but we honor him because we love him. You see, Jesus opened the door of our cell and he paid the ransom to set us free so that we could have a hope and not be shackled by fear, so that we could live in holiness and not get caught up in this former manner of life, which is not the way that we were ever intended to live, and and so that we could live a life in honor of the God who created us and who loves us. Now, I want to close with a story. And and, uh, this story, I I came across this last week, and and it ties back to um, the early 1900s. In the early 1900s, there was a building that was being constructed, and there was an engineer who was responsible for the project uh, who went out to this construction site, and he was up on scaffolds about, about three stories up. And as this engineer was walking around this construction site, true story, on this scaffold, he got a little too close to the edge. Three stories below him was a worker, a day laborer, who was working on the, on the project. And he looks up and he sees the engineer who's getting ready to fall. And the engineer takes one more step and off he goes, three stories down. The worker who is underneath him has a choice to make. Does he dive out of the way or does he help brace the fall of the engineer? Well, the worker looks up and he, he steps in and he, he braces the fall of the engineer as he comes down. And that led to two things. One, it led to saving the life of the engineer. The engineer had just a minor break, but was was absolutely fine. But it also led to a significant set of injuries on the part of the worker who spent the rest of his life with partial paralysis and uh, with a great handicap. And there was a magazine reporter that heard of this story and caught up with this, uh, this, this, this worker, and, and he wanted to know, what has it been like, your relationship with this engineer since the accident? Do you guys talk still? Are you friends? I mean, how's this worked out? And this is what, this is what the, the worker said. He said, the engineer gave me half of all he owns, including a share of his business. He is constantly concerned about my needs, and he never lets me want for anything. Almost every day, He gives me some token of thanks or remembrance. Now, why is it that 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 engineer did that for that worker? Is it because he had to? No, it's because his heart was moved and he, he gave him what he could, which was a cookie cake in comparison, right? And in the same way, as we think of all that Christ has done for us, we follow him and we live a life of hope and following him in holiness and of honoring him, not because we're fearful of him kicking us out of our family, not because we're doing it under compulsion, but we're doing it in response to his great love for us. And so today, as we conclude our service, I want us to to partake of the Lord's Supper together. And as we do so, we're going to have 
bread and we're going to have juice that are symbols of the body and the blood of Christ. And they're reminders to us that Jesus really did break our fall. He really did ransom our freedom. He really did open the door when he died on the cross for our sins. And as the door is open and as we walk out as believers in Christ, we have the great privilege of trusting him in our lives. I'm going to invite the, 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 the guys who are helping to serve to come and to begin to pass. And, and if you are a believer in Christ, you are trusting in him, we'd invite you to, to grab elements as they come by and, and hang on to them. If, if you have not yet trusted in Christ, we'd invite you just to watch what we do today as this is a meal for those who are followers of him. But as they come by, just, just grab elements and hang on to them as we, we sing together of the death of Christ as payment for our sins. And we'll partake of the meal.